0: 23 through 38, which largely consists of the genealogy of Jesus. So Luke chapter, Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simaean, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai. the son of Cosim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar. the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Janam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah. the son of Mena. the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, The son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. When He was asked why it was that he would uh, attempt to climb the largest, tallest mountain in the world. It was said of uh, English climber George Mallory that he simply replied, you know the words, because it is there. Because it is there. And so you may be asking, why are we going to study the genealogy of Jesus, this list of names? Well, because it is there. But it's not that simple, is it? We don't just go here because it is there, but because it is specifically here. Because Luke has decided to put it here. After all, people don't just climb every other mountain, which also, uh, by the way, these mountains are there. But there's something significant about Mount Everest. It was the tallest in the world. It is the tallest in the world. And so it is with Luke's genealogy of Jesus. It is here for a reason. Now, we're going to have to do a little bit of work to understand exactly what that reason is. And we might not even know all of the reasons why it is here. But it is here. And like all the rest of scripture, as 2 Timothy 3 tells us, it is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And that isn't just lip service that we're giving to this passage. But when we understand what it says and when we take it to heart then we ourselves will know our God better, and we will know our Savior better. When we want to understand someone, one of the things that can help us frame our understanding of that other person is to understand the family that they come from. Now this, of course, is often much to the chagrin of that person who may say, yes, this is my last name, or yes, I came from this family, but I don't want you to think that I'm like them. All too often, maybe more so in our day, and no doubt more than is appropriate, children don't seem to want to be known as those who are identified with their family and their family background. It really is an unfortunate thing, the way in which the world pulls us apart from our family in those ways. And yet it is certainly true that a person is not defined by where he came from. Our relationship to our families is not deterministic, but it is in general something of a connection point. Knowing who someone is related to, knowing who someone's parents are, can help you kind of say, you know, that explains a lot. That helps me to understand where you're coming from, or I can see why you think that way, or I understand the things that you're about, or I get it. There are things about family background that help us to understand other people. And there is even a desire in our own selves very often to find out about our family background just because we want some sense of identity. We wanna know who we are. We wanna know where we came from. Not long ago, just a couple of days ago, in fact, I was having a conversation and people, uh, someone asked me out of the blue where my last name came from. An understandable question, of course, what it is so unique and I suppose a little bit strange, like Pickle. And I had to tell them that I really don't know. I heard a passing comment once in a family conversation that gave me some hint to grab onto. But at the end of the day, I ultimately don't know where it came from. But there is something of a sense of it would be interesting to know. At least it would be interesting. And we feel this longing to have some something of a connecting point. Well, Luke's genealogy gives a connection point for Jesus on a number of levels. But really, it takes it all the way back to creation. And then not just your creation, but to the creator. All the way back to God. And so, so Jesus is connected not only with his people, but also with the very one who made us all. This then is Luke's way of showing us where Jesus is in history and in the history of the human race and showing us how he relates not only to us as fellow man, but also how he relates to God. It is a detour of sorts from the narrative account. Luke has been talking about the things that have happened. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened over and over again. He goes from scene to scene to scene conversations are taking place, prophecies are taking place, but here he stops, pulls the car over and gives some background information. And so it is a shift to the background, but it's not a deviation from Luke's purpose. In fact, here he is right in the middle of doing the same thing he was doing in the two verses that precede, verses 21 and 22, and in the passage that follows, chapter 4 verses 1 to 13, which is to show the qualifications and the preparations for the ministry of Jesus Christ. He is showing who he is. He's showing his background. He's showing what God says that he is. He's showing who he is in comparison to other people, and he's showing his sinlessness in the face of the temptation that Satan brings what better way to show Jesus qualifications and his identity as he prepares to minister to the people and to the world than to show this by virtue of his descent so who is this Jesus that is about to go around to Galilee and then to Judea and to minister to all the people and then ultimately for his saving message to go out to the ends of the earth well, Luke says, let me start by showing you exactly where he fits into the human race. Now, as I alluded to a moment ago, last time we were here, we looked at Jesus' preparation for ministry in terms of his, uh, his heavenly identification as the Son of God. And verses 21 and 22 tell us that Jesus was baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son and you, I am well pleased. This shows that Jesus is the Messiah. The son of God, the Christ, by virtue of the Holy Spirit's anointing coming upon him, which was promised of the Davidic son, the son who would come to rule on David's throne and who would be the promised Christ. So the Holy Spirit comes upon him and identifies him in this way. And then the father explicitly and verbally and vocally declares him to be his son, saying, you are my beloved Son." So Jesus is not just prepared for ministry by virtue of the Spirit of God coming and empowering him, but he is identified as the one who would be the right one to minister to people. Here again today, the genealogy will take us to that point. And this is the second then of three passages that show us this, that we're going to look at this morning. And it shows us where Jesus fits, not only in the history of God's plan for the world, but it shows us who he is as the Messiah who would come to save. Now, there are just two main points that I want you to take this morning um, as we go through the details of this. And the first is found in the first half of verse 23, which is the timing of Jesus' ministry. The timing of Jesus' ministry, because this is a note that Luke gives before he just lists out all of these names and the entire genealogy. He talks about the timing of Jesus' ministry. And it says, when he began his ministry... Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. There is nothing that's said here directly about his preparation, nothing that has said what he has been doing really ever since the age of uh, about 40 days old, except for one instance that we studied at the end of chapter two. And in fact, Luke is the only one who even records that account to begin with. 30 years of life with virtually no details about what has been going on. And yet he obviously has been prepared. He has lived a righteous life. He has been taught the truth of God. He has learned what it means to be human alongside of his fellow brethren, of his fellow humans, so that he could identify with us in his temptation, in his suffering. He is a real human being who came and lived an entire perfect life. He has obeyed every point that God has commanded him to obey. Jesus has been doing all of these things for his entire life, in addition to, as Luke 2 tells us, being in subjection to his parents. And so Jesus came to fulfill all of these promises early on by virtue of the way that he was born, and then the way that he lived a largely normal life up to this point, or at least one that was not openly notable and recorded, but now he arrives at this time when he is, as Luke says, about 30 years old. Now, 30, as you may know, was a fairly common age for people to move into the workforce at that time. Um, Part of the culture would have included things like this, such as uh, their apprenticeship finishing and them becoming a full-on member of the workforce. Uh, But in addition to that, and then perhaps more importantly, there are examples in the Bible of others who began their life's work or some of their most important work when they were 30. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh David was 30 years old when he became king. And even more, uh, even more directly instructional was that the priests were required to be 30 years old when they began their ministry. Now, none of these require that Jesus himself had to be 30 years old. But it kind of gives you an idea that this was not unusual for someone to do something important or to make uh, this a start in their life's work when they were about this age. And it is... Exactly that that Luke says. He was about 30 years old. Now this is going to drive some people crazy who want to know exactly the birthday of Jesus or exactly how old he was at this time. He may have been 29. He may have been 31. He may have been 30 and about 57 days. We don't really know and Luke doesn't care. Luke doesn't say. He might even have that information, but it doesn't really matter. And this is something that we should take note of, uh, in addition to some things that we're going to talk about with genealogies here in a few minutes, which is that these are the kinds of things that people often seek out and obsess over, these kinds of details that though scripture does provide many, and they're important where they do, that are not the exact thing that God is concerned about us understanding. When God has revealed something to us, such as the fact that he was about 30 years old, it's important for us to know that. But it isn't important for us to know the exact day that Jesus was born. It isn't important for us to know the exact age he was to the day when he began his ministry or even necessarily to the exact year. And so Luke doesn't provide it. And God is not concerned to provide this for us. And if we become obsessed with seeking these things out, it can be that that is the case to the detriment of our actual understanding of what God has revealed to us and what he wants us to live according to. So we don't know exactly whether he was right on 30 years old but we do know that this is when he began his ministry. Now technically speaking the word ministry is not here at all in the original it just says this was the beginning of But it is clear enough that it is talking about not the beginning of his life or the beginning of something else, but the beginning of what we know as Jesus' public ministry. Namely, when he goes out to the people and starts preaching the gospel of repentance and the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so the word itself is used in other places to describe this time period in Jesus' life. For example, in Acts 1, verse 21 and 22, when they're identifying a replacement for Judas, the apostle, it says, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of, us must, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Peter Is preaching to Cornelius, a Gentile military man. And he says in Acts 10, "Um, you yourselves know, verse 37, the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism, which John proclaimed, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. It's not just Luke noting this here, but it is clearly that the apostles understand the beginning of Jesus' real work on earth. Not that his childhood didn't matter, not that his birth didn't matter, but in terms of him being the protagonist and him being the one who is actually driving things now, the focus of what's going on, this began at this time when the transition took place from the ministry of John the Baptist. And so it is here that when Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. And this is the time when these things are taking place. When he was baptized. When he then goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then when he comes back to all the people and starts to minister to them. So this is the timing of Jesus' ministry. It began when he was about 30 years old. Now, the second part of this and the bulk of the passage concerns the line of Jesus descent the line of Jesus descent or his ancestry where did he come from and this genealogy is listed here Um, a genealogy what is it well it's simply a list of the people that you are descended from It, it it's your ancestors as far back as you can tell I wonder how many of you can trace your genealogy back a long way today. I'd be curious to hear from you. Maybe some of you. You could go back for many generations, many centuries, maybe even uh, a millennium. I'm not sure. I would love to know about it. But um, that's maybe not so common in our day. And we have to search these things out through internet records or other kinds of things that might not be readily accessible to us. But this was not the case for the Jews of Jesus' day, they kept very careful genealogical records. In fact, uh, many of them are recorded in Scripture itself. And additionally, they would have personal family genealogical records. Not everyone to be sure. But it wasn't a unique thing for there to exist such a record as something like this that Luke records for us. Uh, what does the Bible say about genealogies? Uh, not just implicitly by the fact that there are some in there. But what does it actually say about them? Well, it does warn about the danger of becoming obsessed with genealogies. And you can look with me in a couple of places if you'd like. Uh, 1 Timothy 1 is one place. 1 Timothy 1 and Paul writing about, uh, he's writing to Timothy about what the church ought to do and to practice. He says this in verse 3 and 4. As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith what is the problem with these genealogies well it is possible because paul doesn't say here that not all of these genealogies were the same thing as the biblical genealogies in fact the fact that he says endless genealogies probably implies that you're trying to find as many of them as you can or that's kind of all you're paying attention to and never really thinking about anything else except for these other myths that are here the uh, pairing with them does seem to imply something beyond the bible so he's not disparaging genealogies as such. He knows that those are in the Bible as well. But what he's saying is that paying attention to these things and searching these out to the greatest possible degree, not just taking what's there in Scripture, but really going beyond that and obsessing with these things for whatever religious reason there might be, actually misses the point, which is that it causes speculation rather than administering, than furthering the administration of God, which is by Faith, and that faith is in the revealed word of God. So this is a problem because it can cause speculation. Also, in Titus chapter 3, there is an instruction to Titus where in contrast to speaking the truth of the gospel and the importance of good deeds, he warns against this, Titus 3, 9, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife. And disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless this is grouped in here these genealogies again not talking about the fact that there are biblical genealogies or saying that it's wrong to study them but something else is going on with this again perhaps extra biblical or uh, partly extra biblical genealogies that are grouped in with these things controversies strife and disputes about the law And these are all said to be unprofitable and worthless. You notice in these two passages that there is a connection that these things distract from what God actually wants us to learn about. These are things that people pursue when they want to learn, but they don't want to learn godliness. These are the things that people pursue when they think they want to know God, but they just want to know facts. They just want to know things that are interesting, things that are of curiosity But they're not of godliness. And there are all kinds of ways that it's easy for us to seek out these kinds of things. We pursue things all the time that are not in keeping with trying to know God and to grow in godliness. And it's not that knowing facts is wrong. And it's not that being curious about what's been revealed in scripture is wrong. But there is a danger to things that fall into this category And all too often, people will seek to know things related to genealogical records that have to do with curiosity and with mere interest, but things that don't touch the heart, that don't challenge the will, things that don't require godliness. And it's very easy to pursue these things because all they are are about the numbers and the names and the facts and how everything fits together there. But it doesn't demand that you change the way you think about God. And it doesn't demand that you change the way that you live. This is... The kind of thing that falls into that category. So when you find yourself chasing these things down beyond the way that Scripture uses genealogies in their context, just know that this is warned against. And this is something to be on the lookout for. But it's not just genealogies. It's anything that fits in that category of stuff that's learned just for the sake of intellectual curiosity or because you like to get into arguments with people about it. These are the kinds of things that make for that. Many people today love the really interesting and cool historical and archaeological stuff from the Bible. They like to dig into disputed passages. They like to take the historical records and run with them and try to fit all these pieces together. There's a place for certain kinds of doing that because we have a historical faith. And it's wonderful to see how the historical records align with the Bible. But there is a way in which people misuse this and they neglect the weightier matters, so to speak, of the law in order to pursue only those kinds of things. We're warned against doing that. There is a place, though, for genealogies where God has written them down. And this is one of those places. And one of the main values of genealogies is simply this, that our faith that is biblical is based upon historical events. Our faith is not just rooted in history In a very real way, it is in history. Our faith is placed in history. It is the object of our faith. Not that we believe it to the uh, exclusion of believing God and believing in God or putting our faith in Christ. But as an object of what we believe, one of the components of that is we believe that certain things happened. We believe that certain things really took place in history. The resurrection being the chief example of this, or the creation of the world. Things that the Bible describes as history are not matters of mere faith and things that kind of fit nicely in a belief system or a belief structure or a theology, but they're actual historical events that were recorded, things that took place. And so the Christian faith is not a group of precepts, that just tells us what to do. It's not a moral code, it's not a set of values, though it does contain and result in some of those things. The Christian faith is about what actually happened. It is about what God has done and about things that happened in the world that were recorded in the Bible through which God revealed himself to us. And so genealogies are very valuable just for that reason alone. And it shouldn't then be surprising that the Bible can trace the record of Jesus All the way back to the beginning. Because his ancestors were actual people. Jesus didn't just drop in out of nowhere. Jesus didn't just appear. He didn't just come and sort of assume human form. But Jesus actually descended from somewhere. Now we'll talk about how that works here in a few minutes. But nonetheless, these were all real people who were listed People that, if you lived at the time, you could have walked up to and met and spoken with and had a conversation. Unless there was something about them that prevented that, which Luke doesn't record. But the fact is that they are real, live people. Now, there are some other genealogies in the Bible, you could probably list them out yourself right now. If you wanted to, you could start calling them out. Um, A few of these that are highlights that you may be aware of would be in such places as Genesis chapter 5, which takes us from Adam's descendants all the way up through Noah and the flood. Um, And in fact, the names Shem and Noah, and then all of those all the way from Adam and in between are found exactly as here. In Luke 3, when you read Genesis 5, the same thing is true in Genesis 10 and 11. There is a series of genealogies that show how the nations developed after the flood that led up to Abraham. And the names from Shem to Abraham are listed in Genesis 11, 10 through 26, just as they are here. Um, Another genealogy that is of note would be in the book of Ruth, where the immediate descendants of King David are listed. Because it's showing that Ruth was involved in the ancestry of David the king. Or in the book of Ezra in chapter 7, where Ezra's genealogy is used to show his qualifications and his credentials as a priest. We read in 1 Chronicles 1-9... through Well, I say we read it. Sometimes we might struggle when we get to that point in our Bible reading plan. But hopefully you push through and you get through it. But these first nine chapters of that book show descendants of Abraham, Jacob and the 12 tribes, King David, the priests, and even King Saul. It shows the records of these important people who are major players in the life of Israel and in particular Judah in the book of Chronicles. Um, One genealogy that is of special note is... Uh, Found in the first chapter of Matthew, and you can look there if you'd like. There are just a few things to note about that because we're going to consider some distinctions and some comparisons between that one and this one. But in Matthew 1, the first 17 verses, if you just glance at it, you can see that it is about the genealogy of Jesus. It even says that the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David the son of Abraham. You say, Matthew, you're pretty bold starting off a book with that. We haven't even gotten into it yet. And you're already giving us a genealogy. Well, uh, it's short enough to get through and to be able to make it through and hopefully you can understand it as well and you can see more importantly and more seriously why he's doing it why does he put it there he goes from Abraham all the way down to Jesus and he sort of even lays it out in a way where it shows that there are these major stopping points along the way or these major events that took place or major people that are there along the way in that genealogy and so it goes from Abraham all the way to Jesus the Messiah and he is showing one of many qualifications for Jesus himself to be known and proved as the Messiah. Now, that's the other genealogy of Jesus. And we can talk about some of the distinctions and some of the comparisons here in a moment. Let me give you a few facts about Jesus' genealogy in Luke so that we can understand what Luke is doing here. Um, There are some things, first of all, that we don't know about this genealogy and one of them is the thing that we want to know and that we want to figure out but we can't know for sure which is exactly whose line this is going through is this going through the line of mary his mother is this going through the line of joseph is this going through joseph and joseph's father or joseph's father by uh, by a sort of adoption or a leveret marriage is he actually related by blood to the person who is mentioned as his father or somewhere along the line or is this some other kind of thing at the end of the day it's unfortunate for our curiosity but not for our edification that we simply don't know We simply don't know. And there are reasons why we are curious to find this out. Um, One of them is just because we want to know and because the the genealogies that are in Matthew and Luke uh, take different routes to get back to his ancestors. Um, Another reason is because at one point in the the messianic line or the the line of David's descendants, there was a king named Jeconiah and he was cursed and the line was cursed after him so that none of his descendants could reign upon the throne. And it would seem that if he were to go through another route to get down to him from the Davidic descent, that it would be able to get around that curse while still actually having Jesus in the line, legally speaking, of those descendants of Jeconiah. Now, as it turns out, I would argue that it's because Jesus was actually the son of God and did not send technically from Joseph, as Luke points out here, that the problem is thereby overcome. But nonetheless, you can see why people want to know these things and want to, want to sort of sort these things out. But unfortunately, um, despite much writing and uh, much argumentation on this, at the end of the day, it is really impossible to say for sure which side these things are. Are going through. Um, another thing that we can't know for sure as far as where these things came from was the source of all of this information, at least the most recent historical parts, although it does seem like Mary is the most likely source, as she has been the one providing much of the material to Luke to begin with. She is said in certain places earlier in Luke to store up the events of Jesus' life in her heart, so it would make sense as well that if this is her family's line, or at least the line of her husband's family, that. It would come from her and be provided to Luke. One other thing that we don't know about this genealogy is just quite simply who many of these people are. There are a lot of names here, a lot of people here that we would love to go back and find out something about and understand the significance of their lives, but there just is nothing to be found. No records, nothing in history, nothing that we can dig up. And many of these men are simply unknown. And that's okay. That's okay. Because at the end of the day, who is it that is significant? Well, it's Jesus, the Son of God. Even if these people are not significant, they're significant in the fact that they are in his line and in his ancestry. And so we may not remember Jesus' ancestors, or at least anything more than a name, But we remember Jesus, to be sure. And that should be our attitude. That our legacy is ultimately unimportant compared to his. That what matters here is not so much the people along the way to get to Jesus, but the fact that we got to Jesus. And so we don't know who all these people are. So we don't know exactly the routing of the genealogy as far as mother's side, father's side, or some adoptive father's side. Uh, We don't exactly know the origin. We don't know who all the people are. But we do know other things about his genealogy just by looking at it here Um, we know that there are 77 names there can be a grouping of uh, 11 sets of seven if you want to put it that way although the versification is not done that way and luke doesn't really break it down that explicitly Uh, we know that he starts with jesus as the supposed son of joseph and in contrast to matthew's genealogy he doesn't go just to Abraham, but actually all the way back to the beginning of creation. It covers the entire human race. Also, in contrast to most genealogies, um, Matthew, for example, starts at Abraham and goes forward to Jesus. But what do you notice here about Luke's? It starts at Jesus and goes which direction? Backwards. It goes backwards to Adam and then even to God. This... Taking it beyond Abraham is significant for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that it shows us is the same thing that Luke shows us throughout his gospel. Matthew is concerned in his gospel to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the king of who? The Jews. He's the promised ruler, the promised son of Abraham, the promised son of David. And he's trying to convince the Jews that he's writing to, this is the king that has been promised. But Luke has additional purposes. Luke is not against proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He's very strong about that actually, but he's trying to show something else in so many ways throughout his gospel. And it's also the case here, which is that Jesus is not just a Jew. And Jesus is not just the ruler of the Jews, but Jesus is for all the people. Jesus is for everyone in the world. He is a son, not just of Abraham, but of Adam. He goes all the way back. He's one of us. He is in so many ways just like us, and he is not limited to being from one particular nation, though he is ethnically, but he is first and foremost a human being, first and foremost a man just like us, and we are saved by him, not just a few people from his nation, but people from all over the world. Another distinction while we're here between Matthew and Luke is that Matthew goes from David through Solomon, David's son, but Luke goes to David through David's son, Nathan. Matthew adds some historical events along the way and has some women mentioned in his genealogy, Um, but Luke simply states the names and it's all a bunch of guys. No women to be seen. So then, there is a, a lot of diverging from what Matthew says in terms of style, but it still has a similar purpose. It's trying to show us something that's true about Jesus according to historical records. Now, you obviously will note here that there are some people that are familiar, that do look familiar. You have Zerubbabel and Sheltiel from the the time uh, after the return from Israel's Exile. They're found in verses 27, Zerubbabel and Sheltiel. And this actually shows up not only here, but in Matthew's gospel. Um, You have in verses 31 to 32 a few notable famous figures um, Boaz, well, we'll just do it the order he has it, David, Jesse, Obed, and Boaz. These are people that we know from the historical record of 1 Samuel of the book of Ruth and they were were David and his immediate ancestors bringing about this one who would then be the father of the messianic line. You also have the father of the nation of Israel or the fathers of the nation of Israel in verses 33 and 34. Uh, In particular verse 34 mentions Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs and then in verse 33 Judah who was the father of the tribe of Judah the tribe from which the ruler was promised to come in Genesis 49 and that ultimately Jesus came from so Jesus is a descendant from that tribe and then of course you know not only the uh, not only them but you may be familiar with the early uh, ancestors of the human race and in verse 36 you have those who were on the ark Shem the son of Noah and Noah himself so these are a few people that there are things that are known about in addition to some other details that are listed in the book of Genesis about another, a number of other names on the list. But this is simply to say that it's not that all of these people were anonymous. Luke just simply himself doesn't make a lot out of it. He just is tracing all the names and he's taking us somewhere. Jesus then has um, a certain kind of normal ancestry described here. Nobody's accomplishments are listed. Nobody's identity is listed other than their name. He just simply goes all the way back to the beginning of the human race. And this shows us that Jesus is of mankind. He is of mankind. Um, and yet, there is more to it than this. Because we saw in verse 23 something that, is, uh, that should catch our attention. What do you notice there? Jesus was about 30 years of age, being what? As was supposed. As was supposed, the son of Joseph. Um, This is an interesting statement. Why does he say, as was supposed? Well, it's not Luke that thought that. And it isn't Jesus that thought that. And it wasn't his parents that thought that. But who thought that? All the people around thought that. Why did they think that? Because he grew up with Joseph and Mary and because he's a real man. Because he wasn't walking around with a halo glowing above his head. Because he wasn't walking around with something that made him look different than any other human being. There's no reason why anyone apart from divine revelation would think that Jesus was anything other than the normal son born of Joseph and born of Mary. But we know from the early chapters that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. This promise was given to Mary. In chapter 1, we were told about this. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. What is Luke doing here? What he is doing is saying this. He is descended from from man he does have this enough to where he's willing to take this genealogy all the way back and so he has that credibility but it's not exactly the same as everybody else's genealogy because he is born not only of woman but of the Holy Spirit and so even as he's doing this Luke does what he doesn't always do which is to get technical and say you know he's not technically Joseph's son he's actually just supposed to be the son of Joseph Luke doesn't always do that he called Joseph his father and Mary his mother in chapter two when they were looking for him. But here he does because he wants to make this point. Even as he has this human genealogy, he still at the same time does have this distinctness of being miraculously conceived of the Holy Spirit. So then, this genealogy teaches us about that. It tells us about Jesus' unique way of becoming human even while he is truly human. Um, It also is a representation of the fulfillment of God's promises. God has fulfilled a lot of promises already, hasn't he? But he's taken a long time to get here. Again, 76 generations since the fall of Adam in this list, and the promise has not yet come. None of them saw the promise. as Jesus said, many righteous men long to see the things that you now see and hear, and they didn't get to see it. But Jesus now has come to them. Jesus is supposed as the son of Joseph, but he does go all the way back to Adam. But do you notice here that there is something else that's going on? Jesus is said to be the descendant of man and the descendant of uh, men all the way back to Adam. But is it surprising to you how this ends? It is for me. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. And this is where you expect it to stop. But he doesn't do that he doesn't do that at all um, he goes one further and he says he is the son of god now directly here what he is saying is that adam is the son of god and there is a very real sense in which adam is the son of god not the son of god in his uh, state of being some kind of deity like Christ is. We know that Christ is the Son of God, just as the Father is God the Father and the Spirit is God the Spirit, so also Jesus is God the Son. So Adam is not the Son of God in that sense. He's also not the Messianic Son of God, meaning that he has no Davidic promise Adam doesn't, to be that type of son, as we saw last time in verse 22, that there were these particular promises, such as in Psalm 2. So it's not that. But if we just keep it simple, we understand Adam came from God. It's really just that simple. Adam came from God. Not vice versa, not on his own, but Adam is the product of God. God brought Adam into Existence. And so Adam is said to be, in a certain sense, the Son of God. Jesus is also the Son of God, and he is the Son of God by virtue of his descent as a human being. And in that sense, he is a son of God, just as in one sense, all of us are God's children. The apostle Paul makes this point in Acts 17. And though we know that there is a special sense in which only certain people get to call themselves sons of God, those who are believers, that in general, the human race, we are all God's children in a certain way. That doesn't keep us safe from judgment if we're in sin. But... We are those who come from God. And so it is here as well. But there's something else that's going on with this. Luke doesn't just want us to know that Jesus is descended from man. Luke wants us to understand uh, a little bit more to this meaning here. What has Luke told us about who Jesus is in the previous passage? Look at verse 22. You are my what? Beloved son. You are my beloved son when we look at the temptation of Jesus he goes out into the wilderness and we get to verse three and the very first words from the devil are what if you are the son of God if you are the son of God tell this stone to become bread Well, we know that he is the Son of God, but Luke is simply adding weight to that reality that Jesus is not just a descendant of man, but he is the Son of God. And this, I would say, is why the entire genealogy is aimed at this. He's saying, look, I'm gonna show you that Jesus isn't just a man, and I'm not just gonna list out these names, but I wanna show you that Jesus is the Son of God. God has said it from heaven. Jesus is about to prove it in his defeat of Satan's temptation, And even his genealogy shows this fact that this is who you're dealing with. This is not just any man. This is not just someone who decided to come out of Nazareth and become this thing. Even in the process of showing the true humanity and the genealogy of Jesus, he is making this point, Luke is, that Jesus is special, that he is unique. And it's amazing how he can do this while on the one hand, with with this genealogy, he is just showing how he's part of everyone else. And yet at the same time, He is saying something special about him by the way that he has laid this out. In fact, all of these sections that Luke gives show how Jesus is in some real way identifying with his fellow man. He's baptized, he's descended from Adam, he's tempted, and yet they also show how he's distinct. He's anointed from heaven, identified from heaven. He is uniquely the son of God and he succeeds in temptation where Adam, the original human son of God, failed. Jesus is prepared to be the one that does, in fact, obey God, the way that God had said, the one who does bring about God's purposes on the earth, the one who will rule creation according to the creation mandate in Genesis 1 to have dominion over the earth. And of course, not only that, but Jesus came into the world as the son of God to save. He came to be the savior. And this is the one in whom you're placing your trust, a real person who is a real man historical records documenting him, and yet at the same time, special, distinct, unique from all others as the son of God who offers salvation through his crucifixion and his resurrection on behalf of sinners like you and me. This is the one that we place our faith in, this one who came in history, this one who came to do what God said, and this one who is willing to receive all of us who call upon him. Let's pray together as we close. God, thank you for this time today, and thank you for showing us who Jesus is, and where he came from, and for his not only identification with us, but his greatness over and above us. We pray that we would treat him in alignment with that, that we would worship him with our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.